This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Pistown, Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. This is the show we do for you, our subscribers, over on Patreon. Thank you for your continued support. Sam Knight and I are just vibrating right now over uh, the news coming out of Staten Island. The huge union win at Amazon. The Amazon labor union trouncing the company in a vote that was we're recording on Friday here. A few hours ago, the vote was completed. Uh, the union won by, I think, over 500 votes um, yes. in the final tally, tally which is is a pretty shocking result. Uh, this is uh, an independent union, upstart union, started by Christian Smalls, who has just a remarkable story in all of this. Two years ago this week, in fact, he was fired from Amazon after he organized a walkout to protest the uh, safety conditions inside the same Staten Island facility uh, as the pandemic was starting to take hold. He was fired. He was embarrassed by the company publicly. There was uh, there was uh, reporting from Paul Blessed at Vice News who got documents showing that uh, executives were calling him dumb and inarticulate and were, were hoping that the media would pay attention to him because it would make the company look better. Well, uh, Smalls returned to, to the JFK 8, which is what the Staten Island facility is called, and started a union and organized the facility and fucking won today, uh, on Friday, won on Friday. And it's a remarkable story. Like it really is. This is probably the biggest, the biggest labor story in decades. In a very long time. Arguably yeah. in the era of the uh, definitely Taft-Hartley. Arguably since the uh, well, Wagner Act yeah. was first passed in, in the 30s. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking almost a century then. So uh, huge, huge win. Uh, not just, you know, based on the numbers and the underdog story at play here and what it means for the future of organizing and lessons that can be learned, but for what it... Uh, could inspire here the power that a company like Amazon has to be shown that it can be beaten by worker power here will have ramifications. And you're seeing, you're, you know, you're seeing the, the kind of certain, I think that there's some synergy at play here with what's going on at Starbucks too. Definitely. Um, these kind of worker organized union drives that, that are, proving to be bulletproof to a lot of forms of union busting. That's right. I was, I was just going to say that a lot of people um, had informed concerns and, you know, legitimate criticism of this strategy of organizing an independent union because there is obviously going to be insane pushback from companies that are known for it, like Amazon. Um, you know, w- we know what they get up to. We saw how they crushed the uh, organizing drive in Bessemer, which maybe we'll talk about that in a few minutes. They ran a uh, a second vote there after, after the National Labor Relations Board found that the company just committed violation after violation 
in um, that campaign and it's still too close to call um, that. Yeah, there's a, like 400 ballots that have right. been contested. And since the margin between the, the union and the company, the union is losing by a little over 100 votes. And, so, and, and the deficit uh, before was what? Was, Several hundred, if not a thousand. I mean, they got crushed last time. Yeah, it was a two to one margin. It was a two to one margin uh, against the union the last time. So this is a significantly closer vote after it was shown in the first vote, vote that Amazon was engaged in just like rampant illegal behavior. Yeah. And, and you know, that is the uh, warehouse workers union, the RWDSU, the retail warehouse. Uh, wholesale, retail, wholesale department. Sure. Store and that, they're not independent, but um and obviously, Staten Island is a more union-friendly uh, venue right. than Alabama, but you right. know, people a right-to-work state, right? Alabama. Of course, and people were just um, had legitimate concerns about the independent union approach, and they just crushed it. The Amazon labor union, they they fucking crushed it, and like you said, you know, the it it, it undermines the union busting propaganda campaign of oh this is we don't need a third party to mediate between us and you and it's it's not a third party of course not even in a big ass union they're legitimately elected representatives of the workers themselves however i i fear that sort of nuance can be lost on uh people who aren't you know labor nerds are labor obsessed it's it's it it makes it a lot easier to make the case that this is this is us this is worker power has nothing to do with any bureaucrats in washington or you know new york city or whatever this is it's just pure unadulterated solidarity yeah the the idea that you know when a more traditional union like rwdsu comes in uh and Bosses claim that this is some sort of outsider. That's obviously a anti-union propaganda tactic. Uh, these are the workers themselves who are getting the support of of, of an outside union here. But it's it's it is more potent in that situation than when uh, bosses up at JFK eight say it, and people are like, "No, it's just Chris. Really, it's just Chris out on the." on the bus stop there who's been here for the last 11 months talking to each of us bringing us food hanging out and talking about the union and talking about ways that their life can improve if they vote yes on this union and there were some like speed bumps along the way i remember that they had to file when they initially filed they had to repeal it but like that that is a result of union busting of high turnover of employees that that amazon engages in just naturally because the job is so shitty, but it's, it's massive. Amazon though. I mean, we, we haven't like talked much on the podcast cause we tend to focus on, you know, policy and like stuff coming out of DC and not so much on kind of individual union fights. Um, but we have covered it on MMN quite a bit. We interviewed, uh, Christian a few times on, did we interview him on the podcast back in the day? I, I know we interviewed him at least twice on means morning news. Yeah. We definitely um, interviewed him on MMN. I don't interviewed him right have. after he was fired. And after, uh, he'd started this union campaign at Amazon. Um, 
But it's clear this story is going to implicate federal matters here. I mean, it, that by nature does because of the NLRB. But uh, Amazon releasing a statement in response, uh, clearly they're they're crying very much. Uh, they are quite upset about these results. They write in the statement, we're disappointed with the outcome of the election in Staten Island because we believe having a direct relationship with the company is best for our employees. Again, they're bringing up the third party bullshit, which doesn't. Uh, anyway, Chris, a former employee at Amazon, uh, the statement goes on to say we're evaluating our options, including filing objections based on the inappropriate and undue influence by the NLRB that we and others, including the National Retail Federation and U.S. Chamber of Commerce, witnessed in the election. This last part is hilarious. It's like me and my friends saw this happen. I'm, my friends saw what you did. It's like, what are they what are they even talking about? Do they have like election observers from the Chamber of Commerce hanging out? What what is that possible? What could that possibly mean here in the last sentence? Well, regardless of um, the integrity of these claims, which, you know, they're probably just complete bullshit, fabricated, um, totally pulled out of left field. But. As we have seen, that does not mean shit uh, in the in the federal courts, and the wording of this statement is kind of a little scary in that they clearly are angling for an incredibly hostile to labor Supreme Court to try to rein in the National Labor Relations Board. I mean, you could argue that fine. Um, let the let the contradictions heighten and um you know labor management peace was just has been a fiction for decades anyway and that we need to scrap this whole paradigm and um you know take more militant action but i i you know just in terms of <laughs> the smaller <laughs> picture here and <laughs> And and more uh, Sam Knight advocating for uh, deconstructing the NLRB right now and overthrowing the bosses tomorrow. No, no, I'm I'm just I'm trying to see the silver lining of you know of capital and management side um, interests overplaying their hand. But I yeah, current composition of the Supreme Court. Yes, like if this case gets to the Supreme Court, uh, then it's time you know. It does. It it's not going to look good for the Wagner Act. Is all I'm saying. Well, we'll see what their what their challenge is here in terms of undue influence by the NLRB. Is it just the fact that the NLRB allowed an election to happen? Like, what sort of the NLRB isn't putting up signs in the workplace? They're not. Yeah, they're just they're just overseeing the election and making sure people aren't breaking the law here. So. Uh, if anything, the NLRB allows bosses to get away with far too much every time. All the time. These All elections the time. happen. So it'd be interesting to see what sort of case Amazon tries to make in terms of NLRB having undue influence that couldn't be made 10 times over by the union. But as you said, with uh, the judiciary in the state that it is, and particularly the Supreme Court, any sort of bullshit argument flies for the right. We might be surprised. We might be surprised. I, you know, the uh, the Trump White House was completely embarrassed by the courts in their bid to overturn the election and in their bid to 
get a get a, a a Bush v. Gore two opinion out of it. And obviously, the legal minds, <laughs> the legal minds working for Donald Trump, are nowhere were nowhere near the caliber of the legal minds working for uh, Amazon. Yeah. Well, the but stakes are much higher here. Actually, you know, even though we're talking about a presidential election, this union election, when in terms of the state capital has in it as an entity, uh, there's probably a lot more at stake for them than the difference between Trump and Biden in the White House for them. Yeah, and and, and they do side with uh, business all the time and are, like we've said, incredibly hostile to labor. Um, there's the Janus decision, the uh, Cedar Point Nursery decision, just to name two. But I... You know, maybe in the back of the mind of John Roberts and to a lesser extent, um, you know, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, they might be thinking, if we do basically rewrite uh, the National Labor Relations Act, what will happen? Will that encourage unions to be more militant? Because they have it pretty fucking good, the the business side of things. You know, capital. I mean, profits have never been higher. Even if even if union rates go up ten percent, they're still going to be making huge amounts of money. Yes, Be- better the devil you know than the than the devil you don't. Another aspect of this story is how much Amazon labor union sort of did it on its own. Uh, with the campaign down in Bessemer, you saw a lot of lawmakers show up there. You saw Bernie Sanders there. You saw Jamal Bowman there. Um, other Democratic members of Congress showed up. I don't think anyone, any politician showed up at the uh, campaign here in Staten Island. And, you know, we don't know how much maybe maybe that was by design in terms of the union and they didn't want politicians walking around. But it, I'm not entirely sure that's the case based on exchanges I saw between Christian Smalls and AOC when she was talking about how she was concerned about security. Um but progressives are getting a lot of flack for not being there uh, for uh, at any point during the during the campaign. Um, the Democratic Party itself uh, wasn't uh, at all involved in the union, except in an indirect way funding union busting at Amazon. CNBC reported on Thursday that Amazon hired an influential Democratic polling firm to do union busting at the Staten Island warehouse. Uh, this firm is called Global Strategy Group. It's worked with a number of Democratic campaigns, including Joe Biden's Super PAC in 2020. Uh, Joe Manchin has used the firm. Ed Markey has used the firm. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki used to work uh, at the firm. And they were preparing anti-union propaganda pamphlets materials for Amazon at JFK 8 during this entire union campaign. Now we know why they <laughs> lost, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Is, Ro- um, is Robbie Mook at Global Strategy Group nowadays? <laughs> what was his name? Oh, man. Uh, Jim Messina, the guy who yeah. uh, helped run Theresa May's disaster campaign in 2017. Maybe, maybe he was there. Fish lips. This, uh, these two facts here align to 
encourage you to not give a shit if Democrats lose in November. You know, I mean, like, maybe this is a little convoluted. I'm just saying that this Amazon election win seems to be a bigger deal than whatever happens in November. I oh, mean, absolutely. And this maybe, is what, I mean, this is this is what is meant when people talk about politics being more than just casting your vote. And yes, yes. Every, every two years or whatever. Uh, what the Starbucks union is doing and what the uh, Amazon labor union is doing has the potential to improve your material well-being far more than what adding more Democrats or protecting Democratic majorities in Congress can do. If if this is nurtured, if this movement is nurtured and it leads to higher unionization rates, I mean, we're talking about some of the biggest employers in the country right now. So the idea being, if you can organize there, you can organize anywhere. Um, the, the I mean, that that's not entirely true because that leaves out the gig workers, which there's a whole nother obstacle to organizing there. But eventually, if you can get to that space too, you can really, you're really cooking. Um, and don't, don't get me wrong. We could use labor law reform in this country. Um, sure, but bad. how, but, but how committed are Democrats to actually making that happen? Especially when we've got news of, uh, the, the, the Weil nomination. What's his first name? John what was, it? uh, David, David, David Weil, uh, who used to head the wage and hour division at the Department of Labor under and Obama. he was nominated for the position again. Right. And his nomination got tanked because three Democrats did what the Chamber of Commerce asked them to do, which is oppose the nomination because Weil has in the past criticized the gig worker model. And while he was previously at the Department of Labor, he he passed or he, he wrote some regulations that were pretty pro-labor. So if you can't even get a guy who previously served in the, in the position to serve in the position again, because Democrats are tanking the nomination, like what is, what, what, what is this party worth? I mean, we already know the answer to that. It's just, we're just piling on the evidence at this point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I, I guess I just, you know, there, there is a lot that the Amazon union is going to have to do before getting a contract, um, including possibly arguing for the legal legitimacy of the National Labor Relations Board itself. Um, and so there are like two things at play here. The, the, the current shittiness of labor law and also the idea that um, if labor law itself was enough to guarantee union strength, then we never would have had Taft-Hartley. Uh, we never would have had the Reagan-Clinton eras, you know? Um, I don't know. Th th this is a little disjointed for me here. I'm just saying that um, don't discount labor law reform being important, but also... Um, you know, it's a worthy goal to struggle for, but it isn't. It isn't necessary to do this kind of thing, and and at least for now. At least for, for now. now, we'll and, see what the Supreme Court does. And, yeah, and the more that this kind of um, 
grassroots concerted activity happens, the greater chances you have of getting the labor law reform itself. Because, you know, if you look at the years before the Wagner Act was passed in 1935, there was a ton of militant labor activity. All right. Um, moving on, uh, the fetus house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Earlier this week, a strange, um, a, str- a strange press release came across the inbox from the Department of Justice. I'm glad you're taking the lead on this one because I've only caught this story on the periphery and through what you've told me, I just know the highlight of it, which is about the fetuses. Yeah, fetuses or or fetae, fetae. <laughs> I have seen uh, fetuses a lot this week. Um, so basically, yeah. Um, the Justice Department. There's this law that uh, it's called FACE. Let me look it up real quick, just so I get the acronym right. It is the um, freedom of access to clinic entrances. It was passed um, in 1994 under President Bill Clinton, and basically, it you know it prohibits you from trying to intimidate people from using abortion clinics. And eight or nine activists, uh, anti-abortion activists, were charged under the act this week. Uh, for an action they took in October of 2020 in Washington, D.C. And if you're sort of thinking like, wow, that's weird that the DOJ would get involved in in a case like this, um, it's because that the the U.S. attorney is the entity that prosecutes uh, criminal violations in D.C., right? Normally it's like county or state people doing it, but D.C. has this special status, um, so it's the U.S. attorney in D.C., and, of course, they have um, federal laws at their disposal to use. So, evidently, one or several of these defendants who were charged under the act thought that it would help bolster their defense. This is according to them. This is according to a statement released by uh, this organization called like Progressives Against Abortion, which is this really bizarre sort of like, hey, we're left wing and uh, we don't want women to have control over their bodies kind of thing. Or, you know. um, know, Jews for Jesus. Right. We don't want to let people, sorry, I don't want to be, you know, cis exclusive here. We don't want to let, we're left wing and we don't want people to have um, reproductive freedom. So this group released a statement saying that we were blowing the whistle. We're blowing the whistle on alleged illegal abortion practices by a clinic in D.C. by showing the Metropolitan Police Department that one of us has five fetuses in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) This person's name is uh, Lauren Handy. Um, if you check their Twitter profile, it is insane. They're like a Catholic crust punk describing themselves as like a, a, a you know papist anarchist or something. <laughs> Half their posts are about defunding the police, which 
fine, good. I agree with that stance. Mm, five fetuses in a freezer? I don't know about that. That's uh, I'm not in that coalition. It's it's what the establishment fears the most, Sam. Black Lives Matter protesters hand in hand with anti-abortion activists holding five fetuses. Hell yeah, brother! I got your back. <laughs> so this is this this is a wild story, but it gets weirder. It does get weirder. Now I am uh, awaiting some confirmation here uh, from various from 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 yes. I've emailed this person several times, and uh, later this evening, I am planning on uh, checking out the house in, in on Capitol Hill. So, hmm, how do I explain this uh, while minding my legal P's and Q's here? The name of the owner of the house, according where to- Where the five Pro- fetuses were found. Where the five fetuses were found. Uh, the name of the owner of the house, according to DC property records, matches with the name of a person who uh, used to work for the Trump White House, mm-hmm. helped a vet Brett Kavanaugh, evidently mm. not so great at the whole vetting thing. Uh-huh. Um, Go on. <laughs> uh, he also worked in the Trump DOJ and uh, evidently uh-huh. to- took on some of the dirtiest assignments, such as like defending the citizenship question on the uh, on on the census when when the Trump administration was attempting to do that turn it into the Vince McMahon meme over here Keep going <laughs> and and which the timing of this couldn't be better uh, considering the stuff that came out last week about Jenny Thomas also uh, clerked for Clarence Thomas hollered over here (laughs) (laughs) lasers coming out of your eyes over here so so they share the same name we don't know if it's the same person we We just know know they share the same name share the same name trying to verify it and assuming Uh, it is if it is the same person one would also then have to assume that how they came to have this person living in this in the house who had who was this crust punk anti-abortion uh, Black Lives Matter activist. Uh, it's not just some random like apply for a, a basement apartment. Uh, they likely knew each other based on their similar activism and affiliations. Yeah. Or am I, I going too so. far for our lawyers here? No, well, I mean, that is uh, that is a working theory. That is a working theory. Lauren Handy's Facebook profile, according to that, um, they moved into this house very recently. Also, the Facebook profile is just like, first of all, it's like 99.5% anti-abortion and like 0.5% cats. Um, that that's the content of the posts and there is uh, evidence of all kinds of crime on there like <laughs> beyond breaking, the fetuses breaking into the uh, University of Washington um, some sort of lab and photographing oh the, the babies the babies and um, I don't know find something better to do with your time and then also like yeah you're just you're just incriminating yourself there so I guess a, a nice capstone to this is that 
if you really want to know who this person we're talking about, the ex, uh, the guy, the the same name as as the uh, ex Trump <laughs> official, the ex uh, Clarence Thomas clerk. It's all out there. It's all on social media. DC property records. The address of this house is not hard to find. Um, but yeah, I am hoping to uh, maybe confirm it by the time this comes out. In some other news, the Department of Justice decided to finally lift a finger when it comes to the avalanche of anti-transgender laws being passed at the state level. The department sent a letter to attorneys general across the country notifying notifying them that erecting barriers to block transgender individuals from seeking health care could violate several federal laws. The letter was sent on Thursday, which was Transgender Day of Visibility. Not really sure what impact this letter will have, considering it's attorneys general who already know what they're doing likely violates federal law, but they don't care because they're on a crusade. Uh, It was Ken Paxton down in Texas who determined that uh, it's a crime. It's a form of child abuse for transgender teens to seek gender affirming health care. I mean, like, let, I guess let me know when when federal deputies start arresting uh, Republican attorneys general and uh, and I'll and I'll think something's being done here. But so far, we haven't seen any lawsuits or real serious actions from the DOJ to do anything about this, which is getting out of hand. Like it's really creating dangerous environments at the state level for lots of people, not just transgender people, but their families or medical providers, counselors. Uh, it's real sick stuff happening. And it's uh, fueling the latent homophobia that never actually went away. Yeah, you, yeah, you're really seeing that kick up uh, in the last few weeks too, where uh, it's just, yeah, it's circling back to that. It's... Where, where they consider it, it's like if you talk about homosexuality to an elementary school age kid, in the context of, hey, it's okay to be gay, or hey, some kids have two mommies or two daddies, or you know, uh, one mommy and one trans mommy, or something, then they consider that like genderism, ideology, or grooming. Uh, grooming, <laughs> yeah. They bring up the disgusting, um, the disgusting pedophile charges, which you know seem to just come straight from QAnon. Yo, you guys are the ones with the fetuses in your basement. The House passed a bill on Friday to legalize marijuana. The legislation would immediately erase all weed-related convictions from people's records and remove the plant from the federal schedule of controlled substances. Uh, It would also tax marijuana sales. Only three Republicans were willing to support the bill, showing that the party is still a lot closer to Sagar and Jetty than Gary Johnson. Uh, two Democrats did oppose the legislation. At the time of this recording, they had just voted and I couldn't, the roll call wasn't up yet. Um, I'm not sure who the Democrats were. Democrats previously passed this bill back in 2020. At the time, Republicans controlled the Senate, so the bill didn't go anywhere. Today, Democrats control both the House and Senate, though it's unlikely enough Republicans would support the measure to overcome a filibuster. Um, you know, as much as Republicans like to pretend like they're libertarians and uh, 
you know, once small government, they still want to enforce marijuana laws against huge popular majorities who want to see uh, weed legalized. So I have um, I have the names of the of the lawmakers who cross the aisle here on the Republican side. uh, Brian Mast from Florida. Tom McClintock from California, and I think you could probably guess the third person. Massey? No. Which is actually kind of surprising. I don't, he may have missed the vote. I don't know. Um, think your home state. Uh, oh, Matt Gates. Yeah, <laughs> he's the one. And the uh, two Democratic reps who voted against it were uh, dipshit Henry Cuellar, uh, from Texas, who's just awful, and uh, Chris Pappas from New Hampshire. Now, this will probably not go anywhere um, in the Senate, in part because I don't think uh, Joe Biden himself is supportive of legalization. Put the bill but on his goddamn desk, though, and dare him to veto it. Joe Manchin and Gene Shaheen are... That's right. evidently not sold on this. And it's funny, Gene Shaheen with Pappas both being from the state of New Hampshire, which if you have ever been there, is obsessed with the motto, live free or die. Well, senators condemning the state to death. One of the many scandals to fly under the radar during the Trump years was the JBS affair. JBS is a Brazilian meatpacking conglomerate with U.S. subsidiaries and is one of several companies in the U.S. with an iron grip on various markets for meat. And it has been convicted of committing various white-collar crimes in the past few years in both the United States and Brazil. On the U.S. side of things, in October of 2020, the Department of Justice announced that JBS's parent company, pleaded guilty to violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and agreed to pay a $256 million fine. The company also paid $27 million to settle misconduct charges with the SEC related to a bribery scheme undertaken to acquire Pilgrim's Pride here in the U.S. And Pilgrim's Pride itself agreed to pay $110.5 million in fines to settle criminal price-fixing charges which they pleaded guilty to at the U.S. District Court in Colorado. The scheme lasted seven years and involved broiler chickens. Anyway, despite this, the company has raked in tons of money in U.S. subsidies. Since 2019 alone, JBS has received $171 million in subsidies and contracts from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, Democrat from Connecticut, has been pushing the agency's inspector general to investigate, noting that the USDA has the power to disqualify JBS companies from receiving subsidies and contracts. She had a chance to do it again this week. The IG of the USDA, Phyllis Fong, was testifying before the House Appropriations Agriculture Subcommittee, and here is how that went. Now with the guilty plea, at why have you not opened an investigation? Why is the federal government subsidizing what is likely the most corrupt corporation on the face of the earth? Ms. Wong. Yes, thank you very much for your concerns. We, I know we've had dialogue over the years on this issue. I, I appreciate the information you've provided for the record on the guilty plea. 
And I think you've raised an interesting question about whether or not uh, suspension and debarment is an appropriate remedy at this time, given that there has been a, a guilty plea and a conviction. Um, I think we would definitely, our staff will go back and see if there's anything additional that we can do now that the Justice Department is, is completed with its process. You can open up an investigation. Will you open up an investigation now that the guilty plea is there? That is the question. Now that we have a guilty plea, why is there not immediately an investigation into all of this? And at the anyway, why can't we move that? What is the timing? Are you going to proceed to do that? And we are continuing to subsidize JBS. Today, we subsidize JBS and to the detriment of our farmers and ranchers in this country. I will um, say to you that we will go back and evaluate the situation to see if there is anything appropriate for us to investigate or whether there are other remedies. Uh, and we will, we, will get, we will get back to you on that. So another story to keep an eye on going forward. There was a time when a scandal like this would have dominated the news cycle for, well, at least a few days. But in the Trump era and now the pandemic era, it's like tears in the wind. The uh, tears in the wind, huh? Yep. <laughs> the war in Ukraine is still going on, uh, unfortunately, sadly. Um, the Russian military appears to be retreating from cities in the north around Kiev and uh, Chernyiv. Is that is that how that city in the north is pronounced? Chernyiv? I'm just going to defer to you on this one. Looks likely that Moscow is trying to refocus the war to the south and the east, to the Donbass, and perhaps trying to create some sort of land bridge to Crimea there in uh, the southeast. Uh, Russian officials claim that they're going to be that they're pulling back from Kiev as a show of good faith for negotiations going on. Um, they've kind of gotten their ass handed to them a bit there. So maybe they're just trying to save face on that one. Um, I have seen people try and make the claim that, that Russia was um, never interested in Kiev, that the idea was just to put maximal pressure on the city uh, and divert military attention away from uh, the Donbass and the fighting around Luhansk and Donetsk. I'm not sure I, I buy that. I think uh, I think it was pretty clear he was trying to make a move for Keith if he could take it, and um, you know quickly realized that that was not going to be able to happen in a somewhat painless manner. So there's some recalibrating going on right now in this war, and there was reports of progress being made in a ceasefire talks that have terms that were pretty similar to what were offered before the war not that you know i don't know you know this is kind of a a, a tough a noble question if the us and ukraine and other nato countries immediately began some sort of like tri or quadrilateral discussions in February to come up with new security guarantees in the region that settled on like neutrality for Ukraine on NATO, but separate security agreements with European countries in the US, 
plus like further negotiations over Crimea and the so-called breakaway republics, uh, you know, an, a commitment to not have nuclear weapons and foreign military bases in Ukraine. If like something like that was worked out, which is very similar to what's on the table now, if something like that was worked out in mid-February, whether this war would have happened. I know that Putin has said some pretty uh, zany things about Ukraine and how it's not a legitimate country. And based on the moves at the onset of the war, I mean, it looks like that that Putin was interested in regime change. So you can make an argument that even if those conditions were satisfied, uh, he still wanted regime change and this war still would have gone forward. I tend to lean in the other way in that if he would have gotten his or gotten some of his demands before the war, then uh, it would have been a lot more difficult for him to make a case for this war, whether or not he still would have done it anyways. Maybe. I don't know. But we're at this point where this is on the table and there's reportedly some progress being made, although in the same time, there's indications that neither side really want peace talks at this point. Uh, Ukraine actually launched a strike. Ukrainian helicopters flew into Russia and launched a strike against an oil depot. It's the first time in history that, you know, at least in Ukraine's history as an independent nation, that it's crossed into Russia and launched uh, strikes. Um, pretty astounding. And not not going to lie. I'm I'm obviously not a Ukraine flag emoji guy. No one no one can accuse me of that, but nor me. <laughs> it's kind of a Chad move. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Respect. I mean, you know, they're they've been invaded, so like they have a right to take the war to their invader as well. Um I respect that a lot more than some of the kind of blatant war crimes that are coming out from some of the uh, Ukrainian armed forces against Russian prisoners of war that we're seeing. Uh, and also images of like Roma women being um, taped to various uh, telephone poles and, and abused and accused of, um, yeah, you know, various crimes. And I don't know. Yeah. Really, really disgusting stuff there. Um one of the reasons why I'm not putting a Ukrainian flag in my fucking bio. Uh, yeah, so, and like, you know, Russia claims it's pulling back from Kiev, but it's likely putting those forces, you know, in, in, in the Donbass area. So I don't know where this war is going. It could just kind of like morph into more low-grade warfare in the East, like we saw prior to this full-scale invasion, along with more action in other cities that Russia is attacking and just kind of a slow churn of death and destruction, which would be awful. Um, yeah. Also, also on the Russian side of things in terms of um, lamentable actions, they have, uh, there was talks of a potential humanitarian corridor from Mariupol and uh, that failed today. Evidently, the convoy couldn't get the um, assurances of safety that it was looking for, and uh, they will evidently try again tomorrow by the time this comes out. This, um, who knows what will happen. But we keep seeing these glimmers of hope 
in terms of a peace deal. And um, I don't know, it, it, it's just becoming repetitive to yeah. say that, oh, maybe there's a breakthrough in talks. And um, I don't know, it, 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 it seems pretty stalemate-y uh, at the moment. Yeah, it, well, it seems like the war hasn't quite found its stalemate position yet now that there's kind of a Ukrainian counteroffensive going. So now the Ukrainians probably aren't as, you know, they can probably hold out for a better deal. And, you know, Russia probably thinks it can hold out still for a better deal once it regroups. So, yeah, it does seem like neither side. Uh, there, it seems like they're kind of just going through the motions, like they're both interested in peace um, while still wanting to fight this war. And of course, the blame ultimately falls on Russia for starting this obviously awful, illegal, immoral, reckless invasion in the first place, which uh, is turning out to have harmed the nation of Russia uh, far more than it anticipated, I would say. Although I will say that if you look at the foreign exchange rates, the ruble is pretty much back to what it was at the start of the war. And this hasn't come without a cost. The Central Bank of Russia has raised interest rates to something like 20%, and they have imposed strict capital controls on foreign currency leaving the country. Um, but it does uh, raise a few eyebrows in terms of what are the limits to sanctions. And it also uh, raises the point of the fact that when various politicians say, oh, this is the world against Russia, well, it's not. And just yesterday, you saw uh, U.S. officials once again wag their finger at the Indian government, which has expressed no interest in uh, helping maintain this sanctions regime and is using the opportunity now to gobble up Russian oil on the cheap. Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert in this this area, but it just it appears as though whatever damage is being f inflicted on the Russian economy, there's also blowback happening uh, to the U.S. dollar's position as the dominant econ uh, currency in the world. Yeah. I would also question to what extent the world was actually unipolar. I mean, the U.S. was definitely the world's and is still the world's dominant superpower. But that whole... Um, you know, the post-Cold War era where it seemed like it was unipolar, I think a lot of that was countries sympathizing with the United States after the 9-11 attacks, and then the Bush administration just squandering that uh, in a matter of years. Um, you know, it, we all remember uh, Donald Rumsfeld screaming about old Europe and new Europe, and uh the various countries that were sort of appalled by the U.S. going into Iraq. So, I mean, the idea that there was this unipolarity before is a bit limited. This war is having an effect on domestic policy. President Biden released his budget this week, and usually it's not worth really paying too much attention to a presidential budget because they, it's Congress that makes the budget. This is just kind of a statement of of priorities and policies by the White House, and then Congress goes and does its own thing. But when it comes to defense spending, uh, Congress will usually 
take it all and add more to it, whatever the president asks for. And Biden is asking for just a massive defense budget, over $800 billion, an increase from last year, largest defense budget uh, ever requested. And so expect Congress to give them more. Inside uh, the budget, there's $50.9 billion for nuclear weapons, which is a 17% increase over this year's budget, uh, which is you know, $43.2 billion. And uh, most of that money going to contractors to research, develop, and maintain the nuclear arsenal. Uh, some of that money going to uh, government development plants uh, and and you know radioactive material production and storage and shit. So, like you can read the subtext. The idea being, oh shit, there's trouble with Russia. We now have to spend money on our nuclear capabilities, which is just maddening. Like right, like what are we do? Like what are we do? What is the goal of this policy right here? Yeah, um, in, in, I guess enrich contractors at the end of the day. I mean, you know, it's but it's so deeply embedded in our psychology as a nation as well that we need we, our precious nukes. We need to keep our nukes and in and, and Russia as well. Right. Like they are the same way about their nukes, um, our, our precious nukes that we just for some reason as as a civilization can't figure out this nuke problem. I mean, we could still, we could, if we could wave a wand and reduce our nuclear arsenal by half, we would still have enough to destroy the entire planet many times over. Yeah. So this is just sort of, um, this is just really depressing and just kind of a do something, something and a big swinging dick, um, idiot shit. You would think that like, you would think that the U.S. and Russia, the U.S. and Russia are still obviously cooperating on some degree, right? Like we saw uh, a few days ago, uh, there was a, a NASA astronaut and a Russian cosmonaut that just came down from the International Space Station after like almost a year up there. Um, hope you were getting news up there, guys, by the way. <laughs> this wasn't, this didn't come as a huge shock to you. They were just but, getting RT. <laughs> but yeah you would just hope that both countries as they were during the height of the cold war sort of talking to each other like this is insanity we need to um concern ourselves with not destroying the planet uh, uh several times over and that's that's not happening i mean it might be happening on some level but like it's still our fucking monkey brains and no insult to monkeys but like we just can't figure out this problem and we're just the only solution right now is more nukes more nukes more nukes or you know make our nukes faster and bigger or make them smaller and more tactical either way the idea being that more nukes will avoid nuclear armageddon and i guess so far so far it's worked but you know, as Bertrand Russell said, it's like walking on a tightrope. Uh, you can expect someone to do it for 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet. But can he do it forever? Can he just keep doing it perpetually? 
we're 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 asking ourselves that question every day that we don't work toward completely eliminating nuclear arsenals and putting in some sort of global regime to enforce it. One world government to solve the nuclear problem. Which, by the way, is less than 100 years old, which is like an insignificant amount of time in terms of historical perspective. So it's, uh, yeah, the idea that mutual assured destruction will work forever because it has worked until now, it's a huge fucking bet to take. Yeah. As we know, we are not betting men here. <laughs> Should we move on to FOIA Follies? Let's folly it up. So, some new filings this week. Uh, I know I teased the uh, USDA files that I got and putting out something there. Still working on it. Still working on some stuff. So, that is still to come down the road. But two new filings this week. First, you've probably heard of Washington Post economics reporter and uh, Taco Bell enthusiast Jeff Stein. There is another reporter in D.C. named Jeff Stein who covers uh, intelligence agencies, actually. And last week, he brought attention to an interesting blog post from a former intelligence contractor. The contractor, Dan Gilmore, was responsible for overseeing internal social media created specifically for the intelligence agencies to internally share information in real time. And Gilmore quit after becoming disgusted with how, quote, racist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, and misogynistic speech was being posted in many of our applications. Now, obviously, these are the sort of attitudes that one would expect from the type of people who would want to join the CIA or the NSA, so this isn't really surprising in and of itself. Intelligence agents being comfortable enough to egg each other on to be more bigoted, however, uh, somewhat disturbing little disturbing. Unsurprisingly, according to Stein and Gilmore, this started becoming commonplace after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Gilmore said that social media policies were set by high-level officials at the Office of the Directorate of National Intelligence, quote, way above my pay grade. Another contractor corroborated the claims about preferential treatment for reactionaries, telling Stein, quote, Trump's followers in the agency get away with professional indiscretions, some of them serious, while others get dismissed for minor infractions. We literally had folks get their clearances burned for time card discrepancies, while pro-MAGA types might have multiple DUIs, foreign contacts, and in one case, vehicular homicide. They, they were kept working while others were let go. The source also said that this trend is, quote, ongoing. This brings us to the FOIA request itself. Gilmore said, quote, There were many employees at CIA, DIA, NSA, and other IC agencies that openly stated that the January 6th terrorist attack on our Capitol was justified. Hmm. He also said that far-right agents and officials were particularly bilious on the intelligence community's equivalent of Twitter. Surprise, surprise. A platform called eChirp. So I asked the NSA for all records of eChirp posts published on January 6, 2021. It's a good one. I, uh, I wanted to extend the date range there, but just like normal Twitter, intelligence agents uh, post a lot. 
So I wanted to not have uh, the FOIA guys have the excuse to say uh, to delay it forever by saying, oh, my God, there's so many files here. So focus on January 6th. Now, there's this idea among some people on the left that January 6, 2021 does not matter or that it was some gladio-like operation set up by the national security state to grant itself more authority, which, funnily enough, they can't name what new powers were granted except for marginal authorities granted to the Capitol Police. There was a gladio-like quality to January 6 in that there was complicity from security forces who basically just let it fucking happen because they agree with Trump hardliners' fascist aims, and they wanted to see how far things would go. And because of January 6th and seeing how far things got then, they probably are thinking correctly that the next time they try it, they will get a lot closer to achieving their aims of doing what they've done in Latin America, Asia, and Africa for decades. I'm hoping we might get some insight into their attitudes with this FOIA request, Though, like with other requests, I would not be surprised if this either gets denied outright or just flushed down the toilet. Another FOIA request I filed, this one more lighthearted. Um, despite the name of the agency, I filed it with, but trust me, it is lighthearted. Uh, so last week, the Department of Homeland Security issued a press release noting that in February, the agency held a meeting organized by its Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office, or CWMD. It was described as a, quote, first-of-its-kind meeting of senior state and local officials to share best practices for protecting their citizens from radiological and nuclear threats. These officials represented the 14 local jurisdictions that participate in CWMD's Securing the Cities program, senior officials from the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration also joined the half-day virtual meeting. Sounds a little scary, I guess. Uh, you know, no one likes to think of nuclear or radiological threats as we were just talking moments ago with the uh, threat of nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. However, what I am asking for is all records related to the meeting and so-called electromagnetic pulse attacks or EMP attacks. It's a favorite subject of cranks. EMP attacks involve triggering a chain reaction through electric and magnetic fields that can cause electric surges in the adversary's grid. It sounds scary, but the problem with worrying about EMP attacks is that they can really only be caused by nuclear weapons. So it's kind of pointless fretting about them because if a nuke is going to get detonated, well, it's probably going to get detonated on your head. It will be detonated on a city and lead to massive retaliation. So why worry about some far out sci-fi shit unless you're trying to drum up fear or get some kind of lucrative boondoggle contract? My computer doesn't work. Oh, wait, I'm incinerated. <laughs> Anyway, the idea of people crying about EMPs is funny and interesting to me. It's a bit of a shot in the dark, but I, either way, just always be filing. There was that Republican congressman who a few weeks ago floated the idea of enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine by using 
uh, either an EMP or what he described as sonar weapons to ground Russian airplanes. Protecting Ukraine by detonating a nuke in its atmosphere. (laughs) And then causing, like, fucking planes to just fall out of the sky and land on Ukrainian cities. No one's flying. The no-fly zone has been established. All right, interns, bring in the garbage can. Mm. Smells terrible. I don't know who brought in those five fetuses, but... Oh, God. (laughs) Whoever did. Lauren Handy, what are you doing? Where's Lauren Handy? That's their name, right? Did I get their name right? Yes, you did. We're going to have to interrogate our interns, know what they've been up to lately. That's good right there, interns. Thank you. Garbage candidate number one, MSNBC and Jen Psaki. Reports are that she's leaving the White House, going through the media revolving door, and landing her own show at MSNBC in the next few months. Obviously not at all surprised by this, but it's just really gross. It's really gross. It's like, instead of hiring investigative reporters and journalists and you know paying journalists at the low end of their scale more money, They're going to spend millions bringing in a a literal paid propagandist, someone whose entire career has been based around obfuscating for reporters. They're now going to be a face of some news program on MSNBC. Mm. At least we're not pretending anymore. At least we're removing the firewall between the, the, uh, you know, uh, the Democratic Party and the shit-lib industrial complex. In a similar story, garbage candidate number two is CBS and Mick Mulvaney. CBS hired Mick Mulvaney this week to be a contributor on the network. Mulvaney, also basically a paid propagandist, this time for the Trump administration, former chief of staff. He was the former OMB director, briefly the uh, director at the CFPB. He was he had that train wreck of a press conference where he basically admitted that Trump did impeachable crimes in regard to Ukraine. He also was a covid truther at the start of the pandemic, saying that the media was only focusing on it to harm the Trump administration. He now has a gig at CBS reporting. uh I fuck, I forgot who who broke the story a few days ago over at the Washington po- Washington Post. But uh, CBS executives told workers who were understandably upset by this hire that, hey, Democrats are going to get washed in the midterms. Republicans are going to come to power and we need people like Mick Mulvaney for access. Mask off, huh? More like Dick Mulvaney. Uh <laughs> Garbage candidate candidate number three, Madison Cawthorn. Curious what your take is on this story, SK. Uh, Madison said like a week ago that DC is just like House of Cards. He gets invited to orgies and he sees members of Congress doing key bumps, basically doing cocaine. That generated a lot of headlines, naturally. Um, And he was then immediately called into Kevin McCarthy's office where he was dressed down by the uh, minority leader and said that, you know, he's lost all confidence in him. And reports are that Cawthorn admitted he was exaggerating 
Although he since has claimed that he wasn't exaggerating, that this has really happened. I don't know. Do you think, what do you think of this story? Is he, is he bullshitting? I don't think he's bullshitting. It's, it sort of sounds like one of two things that a, he's bullshitting to sound cool or B, he's telling the truth and uh, but is only like basically exclusively talking about Matt Gates. <laughs> yes. I, just, I, I don't, you know, these people are evil in a lot of ways, but they're also yes. boring as hell. They're very dull. Lots of and, evil, dull people do cocaine. I don't know. I just, Especially uh, people of that like generation and cohort. Like I could see uh pretty pretty rampant cocaine use among re- republican members of congress you know in rampant i mean like a couple dozen uh i could also see a lot of these guys being freaks and and not in the good way <laughs> um like being like weirdo creep freaks and like i wouldn't be surprised at all if they do some like weird shit like have some weird sex parties and stuff like hire prostitutes or something and have some like weird sex parties. And it would make sense. Like that's happened. Like Republicans have gotten busted for doing this. So I think that, that, that Cawthorn was making a disclosure, but trying to make it sound cooler than it actually was while at the same time trying to distance himself from it when really it was just like straight up illegal perverse behavior, not House of Cards, like Hollywood sexy behavior or anything. I guess I'm just, uh, I, I'm i sort of leaning toward the idea that if there were uh, these like Coke orgy parties uh, on the reg, that there'd be a lot, uh, there'd be a lot more unexplained death or like overdoses and shit, like, you look at some of these guys, they <laughs> their best days are behind them. True. That's true. And like an orgy implies like a certain like willingness on the part of all parties. And I don't think that's going down here. Like I think like there were probably either financial transactions going on or something much, much darker uh, behind these sex parties. And Madison Cawthorn, you know, I think it's telling that McCarthy immediately tried to put an end to this talk, like immediately scolded Cawthorn about this, as opposed to the sort of hands-off approaches he's taken to uh, members of his caucus being affiliated with open white supremacists and saying extremely racist shit. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to think, but he's nominated for the garbage can because he should name names if it's true. Let's hear it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely lay down some names if it's true. Next up, garbage candidate number four, the uh, celebrities who crossed a picket line uh, after the Oscars. There was a pretty swanky party hosted by Jay-Z at the Chateau Marmont Hotel in Los Angeles. Did I get that right? Was it Marmont? How do I say that? I don't know. I think you got it more or less right. A resident French speaker here. Um, to be clear, I also think you shouldn't over exaggerate the French accent when you're saying when you're English. speaking English and saying yeah. names. Uh, Chateau Marmont. Yeah. yeah. Don't want to be obnoxious. Paris and you deserve to get poked in the eyes. 
Well, workers have been, Unite Here Local 11 workers have been protesting outside this hotel since February of last year, uh, accusing it of trying to union bust, uh, saying that there was uh, uh, sexual harassment and racism uh, by the bosses there. Uh, and they've been uh, boycotting this hotel and trying to get celebrities and uh, you know movie production companies that might want to shoot films there to not do this. Well, Jay-Z hosted an Oscars after party at the hotel. And according to In These Times, here's the rundown of celebrities who crossed the picket line to attend. Rosario Dawson, Janelle Monet, Zoe Kravitz, Timothy Chalamet, Michael B. Jordan, Rihanna... Emily Ratajkowski, uh, Saweetie. I don't know who that is. I've never heard of Saweetie. Uh, Questlove, Daniel Kaluuya, Tiffany Haddish. Haddish uh, Tiffany Haddish. Haddish. Okay. I don't know. Tyler Perry, Mindy Kaling, John Hamm, DJ Khaled, Kim Kardashian. Some of these not surprising at all, like Kim Kardashian we've talked about on the show. I'm not surprised she would cross the picket line to uh, attend this party. Uh, others are a little disappointing. I guess, actually, I'm not surprised by any of these like Hollywood dipshits. Daniel Kaluuya is disappointing. He played Fred yeah, Hampton. Come that's on, true. man. Yeah, but he's an actor at the end of the day. Yeah, true. They're all, they're all fucking weirdo actors. Can't trust any of them. They're all nominated for the garbage can. Garbage can at five, a similar vein, people freaking out about the slap. The stand-up comedians who claim they feel unsafe now. The actors who weighed in saying it was such a disgrace for the Academy that Will Smith could have killed Chris Rock. (laughs) So many of these comedians have been like, spending a a good part of the last decade talking like railing against like safe spaces and trigger warnings and all sorts of you know regurgitating all sorts of boring conservative radio talk dj um tropes and now look at them (laughs) my take on this is that like we should have an absence of a take like i I'm I'm the type of person that when I'm scrolling through the timeline on Twitter and someone posts a fight video, I, I'll tend to watch it. Oh hell yeah! So I've seen I've seen this shit happen all the time. Shit happens every day. It's been happening every day for human history. Usually video, far huh? worse. Yeah, usually <laughs> <laughs> take it from someone who knows, right? Uh, so. Like what happened at the Oscars was far more mild than the stuff you usually see. Uh, happening but it's just like the venue that has people freaked out and the fact that like rich celebrities were involved in it people are suddenly thinking that they're this is this is the degeneration of society now no it's not it's like two dudes had a had an altercation same shit that happens everywhere like if i had to like dive into this i'd argue that like you know, Will Smith probably has some shit going on, like did not handle that in a very chill way at all. And like it was really stupid joke, like low effort joke by Chris Rock. Like neither guy looks good, although I think in like in the PR battle afterward, Chris Rock looks a lot better than Will Smith right now. Um I'll also hand it to Chris Rock that it was very funny when he said, Will Smith just slapped the shit out of me. Yeah, he handled the whole thing pretty well. I mean, what else could you expect him to do? I'm not 
sure he could take Will Smith if he decided to escalate it. Will Smith is, you know, had to train as a boxer to be Muhammad Ali, and you could really see that come through in his like slap form. <laughs> he really like put his fucking hips into it and and body into it. Um, I don't think he really caught Chris Rock. It seemed like his fingers just kind of caught Chris Rock's chin, uh, and you know when when a man slaps another man he's not doing it really to hurt him he's doing it to humiliate him and that was you know that was and and you someone could argue that chris rock has long been trying to humiliate jada pinkett smith and will smith but that's just you know that comes with like who chris rock is and i don't know i've spent too much time already talking about it i didn't want to even talk about it you know (laughs) But like the people freaking out about it, that's my greater point is like we shouldn't we shouldn't draw these like societal conclusions. The people freaking out about it shouldn't be freaking out about it. Stand up comedians are still safe. Uh, More safe than they should be, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a take, um, which is it was funny. (laughs) It was funny. It was extremely funny. It was very funny. It was funny. Yeah, I don't think Will Smith covered himself in glory. He probably would have looked better just hitting Chris Rock with the double middle finger. Um, but it was... St- <laughs> I don't know, man. Sometimes people losing their cool and uh, humiliating themselves uh, is kind of funny. Especially weird actors. Yeah. These Very dudes are all rich, weird actors. Incredibly rich. They're going to be Will fine. Isn't Will Smith a Scientologist? Yes. Okay. I believe. <laughs> okay. Enough said. Garbage candidate. uh, Legal disclaimer to the incredibly litigious Church of Scientology, which is a legitimate religion and uh, totally legit, uh, very above board. Everything is fine with them. It was not invented by L. Ron Hubbard. Garbage candidate number six, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who bent to the Pagulas, the extremely wealthy oil billionaires who own the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres, Terry and Kim Pagula, names ripped straight out of the 80s, Terry and Kim here. Uh, They own the Bills. They're worth like $5 billion. They want a new stadium for the Bills, and they threaten to leave Buffalo, move down to Texas unless the city builds them a new stadium, even though they could build it themselves for like a fraction of the cost. Well, the city of Buffalo wasn't doing it, so the governor of New York stepped in, Kathy Hochul, a big Bills fan, to make sure that the Bills don't leave by pledging uh, plus maintenance costs that are going to add up to over a billion dollars to build this stadium. The Pagulas contributing a much smaller fraction to the stadium building costs, uh, even though they're going to continue to reap all the profits of their ownership uh, in this team, and those profits will only go up. Uh, with this new stadium. This new stadium, by the way, is going to have fewer seats than the current stadium. Uh, It's going to have more private boxes, though, so that uh, very wealthy people can Mm. attend the game. So regular uh, working class Bills fans will be priced out going to games at this new stadium. Also, about $600 million of the funding that the state of New York is putting forward of that $600 million, $500 million is coming from uh, the Seneca uh, people um, and casino revenues that the state uh, 
shook them down for recently. This was a legal dispute um, on whether or not um, the tribe owed this money to the state. Uh, they ultimately lost that legal battle, had to pay upwards of $500 million to the state of New York, and now that money is being diverted to building the fucking Buffalo Bills Stadium. I don't know who's nominated here, Hokel <sighs> or the Pagulas, both of them, I guess. Both of them, fuck it. Rope them All together. Right. All right. Who are we throwing in? Jin Saki. <laughs> so basically we have CBS and Mick Mulvaney uh, guilty of the same exact crime as MSNBC and Jen Saki, but uh, you want to throw Saki in? Well, I guess there's a good argument for... <laughs> There's a good argument for the picket line crossing celebrities, especially. I, I would say that MSNBC and Saki and CBS and Mick Mulvaney kind of cancel each other out. Okay. So maybe so we, we should look elsewhere. Celebs? People freaking out about the slap? Uh, I'm down to throw the uh, celebrities in. I'm not really feeling Madison Cawthorn. Uh, he's obviously a disgusting individual, but like the shit he yeah. did this week is like, far down on the hierarchy of, of shit that he's done. Let's let's do the weird Hollywood celebrities. The ones crossing the picket line or yeah, the let's, <laughs> let's do the one let's do the ones crossing the picket line. Okay. Picket, picket line crossing, crossing celebrities. celebrities. You are going, you are going in, the in the garbage can. can. Oh, gotta cram them all in there. There's uh, it should be easy. You just kind of slide Timothy Chalamet in there along the side. Oh, Zoop, that's a right low there. blow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John Th- Hamm in there too. Two hundred fifty thousand dollar gift bags. Uh, they all fell into the the fetus goo. DJ Khaled, another one in there. <laughs> That is the show for today. Thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for your support. We got a brand new episode coming out next week. We're here in DC, so you don't have to be.